Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 65, Burning the Last Bridge, the East Tennessee Rebellion of November 1861. Part of the later post-war myth of the Confederacy portrayed it as a completely united South standing up against Northern bullying. Now, we've questioned both of these aspects before and may do so again. For today's episode, too, we will leave aside the disingenuous claims of abolitionists supposedly imposing their views and focus on the issue of unity, both Southern and Confederate. First, as we've explained, none of the border states ultimately went over to the Confederacy excepting Virginia, and there the entire border region split rather than succeed. Ultimately, of course, West Virginia would form its own state entirely. And yet they were hardly alone. Throughout the war years, entire regions of the Confederacy would in some manner resist the new government in Richmond. Often this resistance came passively, but in several notable examples, it included direct, subversive activity or even outright fighting. We should not imagine that these counter-revolutionaries had deep sympathy with the slaves, necessarily, although some individuals did. But on the whole, the people involved in anti-Confederate resistance frequently held a quiet opposition to slavery as an institution. This rarely manifested in open abolitionism, but most resistors had no slaves and wanted no slaves. Plantation did not dominate their worlds. These men and women resented the selfish quasi-aristocracy that broke the old Union and dragged them into war. And in many cases, this actually resulted in them arming and fighting alongside former slaves in the end. Today we'll explore one of the most glaring examples demonstrating the disunity of the Confederacy, an example second only to West Virginia, and that is the region of East Tennessee. By the end of this episode, we will see an actual anti-Confederate uprising, the one doomed by the limitations of geography and rail travel. To briefly recap the issues of this state from our previous episode covering the topic, the story begins decades earlier, arguably in the very founding of Tennessee, and the story of that state. Geography affected it much more than most other states. Tennessee began in the east, where the first capital was Knoxville, still the dominant lodestone for that part of the state. The land here, hilly where it isn't mountainous, created numerous small and medium-sized communities, often partly cut off from one another. And up in the far hills, villages existed in near-perfect isolation from the outer world. It wasn't at all easy to cross over the Appalachians in the 18th century, but over time people found ways or just came the long route around from the north and south, and so settlements rapidly spread out into central and then western Tennessee. This led to the rise of cities like Murfreesboro and especially Nashville, which enjoyed a valuable location on the Cumberland River. As mentioned in our previous episode, the Cumberland joins the Tennessee just south of the point where the Tennessee flows into the Ohio. The Tennessee River Basin controls much more land than the Cumberland. However, the Cumberland River and central Tennessee in general are flatter and more agriculturally productive than the rocky heights of the east, and the river is more naturally navigable. Soon after the state's admission to the Union, the capital moved to Nashville. Although in the early years the legislature moved the capital several times, it soon stayed there in Nashville, which grew into the most important city. 
Now, West Tennessee is a bit of a different beast entirely. There, the city of Memphis formed as a Mississippi River town, dominated, like most, by cotton and tobacco and slavery. While fairly wealthy in its day, Memphis faced stiff competition from similar cities along the river and also periodic outbreaks of mosquito-borne illnesses. It was the most economically important city in West Tennessee, but could never eclipse its rivals within the state. The differences in geography created a strong cultural and political divide as well. The eastern hills had few slaveholders. The people there had very strong feelings about America as a whole, too. For one thing, they often felt much more kinship with fellow citizens living in the Appalachian landscape, as far as Pennsylvania, than they did with slaveholders down in the lowlands of their own state. They naturally looked with suspicious eyes at the entire business of secession and the Confederacy, because states' rights just didn't make sense to them as an idea. Tennessee, as a state, initially voted heavily against secession in a referendum, but in the aftermath of Fort Sumter, they did so again, and the results switched. Now again, in order to avoid recapping an earlier episode, there's at least some question as to the validity of those results. But in general, West Tennessee did strongly favor secession, East Tennessee opposed it, and so the political balance of Middle Tennessee mattered a great deal. And make no mistake, there existed an organized, secret campaign to sway the state for the Confederacy. Months before the bombardment of Fort Sumter, a group of secessionists banded together to start a persistent, ongoing drumbeat toward secessionism. We know this because they sent one of their letters on the topic to a post office official whose unionism could not be so swayed. That man passed it on to the Knoxville Whig, which published the letter. So, too, one factor that probably pushed Tennessee politics into the sway of the Confederacy was the point that political insiders who received a swift rebuke when that initial referendum voted more than 4-1 to one against even having a secession convention, decided to declare themselves for secession anyway. Only then did they call for a new referendum. The resulting swing of the votes wildly in favor of secession is so amazing that some doubt must exist about whether this could possibly have been honestly collected. And certainly pro-slavery Southerners in several other instances found nothing at all strange about, well, having public ballots, mostly for a show of democracy, to validate the oligarchy. However, while Middle Tennesseans who opposed secession largely went over to the new Confederacy even when they disagreed with it, Easterners did not. Of course, the state legislature knew this was a matter requiring some finesse. So they dispatched an agent just before that second referendum to carry the gospel of secession eastward in the hopes of securing the loyalty of that section. As their man in Knoxville, they selected John Bell. We've encountered John Bell before. Born way back in 1796, he embodied the spirit of an older generation. Though a born Tennessean and a slaveholder, he opposed both Andrew Jackson and slavery? or at least its expansion into the West. He represented some of the last of the old-line American conservatism in an age when new radical politics seemed to gain ground every year. We don't have time to recount his entire career, but the important part is that he was very well respected in Tennessee and also nearby states such as Kentucky. As such, in the election of 1860, he and like-minded fellows gathered under the impromptu banner of the Constitutional Union Party, and put their hat into the ring. 
He earned a respectable number of votes for such a young party, but could hardly hope to win. And that was not technically his goal. The Constitutional Unionists hoped to throw the election into the House of Representatives. But that didn't happen. In the end, only Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia went for the Bell Everett ticket. The three anti-Republican parties ultimately could not prevent him from taking office. In the aftermath, of course, came secession, and John Bell initially opposed it, right up until his opposition would have actually mattered. In the aftermath of the bombardment of Fort Sumter, he turned coat, believing that Lincoln's call for a volunteer army represented a step towards autocracy. In actual fact, of course, there really was a large rebellion, and the imposition of military control would be the direct result of secession. So, too, we shall see how Jefferson Davis up in Richmond acquits himself on the matter of civil rights. But regardless, it seemed John Bell's destiny to mirror the politics of his home region. But Bell had a great deal of clout in France and influence in East Tennessee, and seemed like the perfect choice to bring them around on the subject of the Confederacy. To put it mildly, that did not happen. Bell went to Knoxville to proclaim state unity to a meeting of very unhappy Eastern notables in June of 1861. They listened closely, thought the matter over, and then listened to the voice of reason in their hearts, which instructed them to renounce John Bell and all his evil works. Secessionists in Knoxville did gather on June 6th to hear John Bell speak in favor of the Confederacy. There were a few secessionists in the region, and particularly in the cities of Knoxville and Chattanooga. But Knoxville attracted all sorts, and other men did not care to attend. Just two of the men in town avoiding John Bell included Parson Brownlow and Oliver Temple. But a half dozen prominent names could have followed. John Bell, seeing some of these men, walked over and expressed disappointment that they refused to even listen to him. Brownlow present at that time, looked him in the eye and with an air of disgust reportedly said, We did not wish to witness the spectacle of your being surrounded by your enemies, who a few months ago were denouncing you as a traitor. We did not wish to hear these men shouting for you and see you in such a position. Brownlow then denounced secession, in the kind of heated manner that only a man like Brownlow could manage, as John Bell stood there in mute silence. That moment was, in a way, the death knell of John Bell's career. Papers as far away as Louisville, Kentucky, predicted that his surrender to the cause of secession would destroy his reputation, and they were right. But the moment also represented, in a way, the rise of Brownlow, who will endure the war years and become state governor on the other side. William Parson Brownlow really had been a preacher, but his true passion was in the press. Ten years younger than John Bell, he, in the end, seemed to belong to a far different era. Bell worked on the old lines of respectable public speeches and personal agreements with fellow politicians to manage affairs. Brownlow, however, became a newspaper man and something of a rabble-rousing demagogue. As a young man, he became a Methodist circuit writer, going from church to church to spread the gospel. And young William Brownlow could be very unpleasant when he wanted to be, though very entertaining nonetheless. He could hold forth invective like you'd never believe against every other religion you can imagine, and a few you couldn't. Baptists, Catholics, especially Mormons, and more, came in for his scorn. But he also spoke out against vice and sin however he saw them, and he saw them everywhere, though he had very little scorn against slavery. Eventually he married, 
and seeking better pay to raise a family, he got into the newspaper business. Now that's when he found his real talent. His editorials were as entertaining as his preaching, and could reach more people. Working his way upstream, he eventually rebranded his paper the Knoxville Whig and moved to that city in 1849. For the next 12 years, he steadily grew his subscriber base and hammered every enemy he could imagine, and a few he probably couldn't. As befits a newspaper man of the era, he occasionally had to deal with people assaulting him or threatening to burn his press, but that was just how it went in those days. One quirks of the events to follow is that John Bell, a slaveholder, persistently if mildly pushed against slavery. William Brownlow never personally owned slaves, but he careened erratically around the issue. He endorsed at varying times abolition, recolonization to Africa, and leaving slavery as it was. For a decade or more before the Civil War, though, he had become something like an ultra-pro-slavery man. Frankly, John C. Calhoun himself probably would have found Brownlow a little much on the topic. Exactly what drove this remains unclear, but Brownlow was pretty strongly racist. He loved slamming abolitionists and sneering down his nose at African Americans alike. He refused outright to debate Frederick Douglass because the thought of meeting him on even terms disgusted Brownlow. He publicly and repeatedly approved of slavery. In respect, this aspect of Brownlow represented in part the absolute worst elements of Southern culture. And while his loud arguments over religion had an element of friendly competition even at its most intense, for he was not a violent or thuggish man, his callous dismissal of African Americans emphatically did not. He felt ice-cold racial superiority, and that was that. That said, Brownlow would meet and argue with white abolitionists. And at such meetings, the two debaters often shared something at least a bit unusual in this context. The name of his paper was no jest. Brownlow adhered to the Whig Party with the holy fervor of a fanatic. As he wrote when someone asked if he would consider switching parties as the Whigs began to collapse, I hasten to let you know the precise time when I expect to come out and formally announce that I have joined the Democratic Party. When the sun shines at midnight and the moon at midday, when man forgets to be selfish or Democrats lose their inclinations to steal, when nature stops her onward march to rest, or all the watercourses in America flow upstream, when flowers lose their odor and trees shed no leaves, when birds talk and beasts of burden laugh, when damned spirits swap hell for heaven with the angels of light and pay them the boot in mean whiskey, when impossibilities are in fashion and no proposition is too absurd to be believed, you may credit the report that I have joined the Democrats. That said, similar to many secessionists and rather unlike most Whigs, Brownlow also explicitly blamed abolitionists for the furor over slavery. He did, however, have very little good to say of the fire-eaters in turn. He viewed the country as one united whole, and that was that. Crucially, he categorically refused to change his stance with the momentous political events going on in 1860 and 1861. He even refused the idea of serving as a chaplain with the Confederate forces, generally viewed as an honorable role regardless of the political right of things. His statement on the subject read, When I shall have made up my mind to go to hell, I will cut my throat and go direct, and not travel by way of the Southern Confederacy. Brownlow was just not the kind of man to compromise his principles, be they right or wrong, is the main theme here. Sometimes this led him to advocate viciously for slavery, 
but it also led to him standing up against the Confederacy. He would not bend an inch, no matter how strong the wind blowed. East Tennessee had many men who disagreed with Brownlow in all kinds of issues. It had Democrats, slaveholders, abolitionists, Baptists, and even some Catholics, and many others. But broadly speaking, the region agreed with him firmly on the notion of resisting secession. On June 8th, when that questionable second referendum turned in the secessionist majority, East Tennessee voted by a wide margin against it. And two weeks later, delegates from all over the region met in Greenville. There they formed another kind of secession convention, directed against Tennessee. They in fact sent a delegation to Nashville to explicitly and directly ask the state government to simply let them separate and remain in the old union. Unsurprisingly, the state government rejected this offer, and that meant trouble. In July, a Confederate military commander named Felix Zolikoffer arrived in the area, and soon discovered, somewhat to his initial confusion, local population would not be easily subdued. Not only had they voted heavily against the re-election of the state governor, whom we have intentionally ignored in this episode because he's not that important, but they actually elected their usual delegation to Congress. Not the Confederate Congress, mind, but men going to Washington, as they had done for three generations. Also in Washington, Senator Andrew Johnson of East Tennessee had no intention of surrendering his seat and continued to represent his state through the war years. East Tennesseans planned for a great deal more than just talk in the daily business of government, however. Even as secession-friendly postal officials began to halt Brownlow's paper in order to stop him from spreading unionism, others began to take direct action within East Tennessee. Merely because they formed such an unusual trio, and one of them will be at the heart of these events, the Carter brothers bear some amount of explanation. James, Samuel, and William Carter lived in the back hills of Tennessee, the corner of the state wedged in between Virginia and North Carolina, and their unionism, like that of Brownlow's, was absolutely non-negotiable. Each of the brothers supported their nation in a different way, however. Samuel Carter, though a naval officer, spent his time in the war getting men out of the region and training them for a liberating return in force. Unusually, he rose to the rank of general and then post-war returned to naval duties, becoming the only American in history to hold the commission both as a general and a flag officer. His brother James sought aid from the Lincoln administration directly. He moved arms into the region to hand them out and hopefully cause trouble behind the Confederate lines, perhaps even leading to the eviction of the Confederacy. Now, both of these maneuvers required men undertake difficult treks over hard terrain, as mounted Confederate patrols watched the known passes. These cavalrymen could, and sometimes did, summarily execute Unionists just trying to escape the Confederacy. William Carter figured he might have another card to play, however, one that could be extraordinarily useful. He looked around, and realized that the Confederacy depended on the railroads to get in and out of Tennessee. Without them, they could not easily move troops into this region. They would have to march a very long way over rough roads. So William proposed to simply burn the bridges, leaving the Confederates stuck. Ideally, Union soldiers could rush into East Tennessee, and the Confederacy might back down and concentrate their forces elsewhere. This plan had issues. It would require, under the very best of conditions, careful timing and rapid movement on the part of Union soldiers. 
and they would necessarily place themselves right in the Confederacy's backyard, on the primary rail line between Tennessee and Virginia, and without a supply line from Kentucky themselves. If the Unionists of East Tennessee strongly supported the movement, it might work, but it would be very tricky business. William got himself over to Kentucky and met with General George Thomas, who will go on to remarkable fame at Camp Dick Robinson. This camp sat in the middle of Kentucky, and theoretically at this time represented state militia. In practice, the men had come in to muster for Lincoln and Liberty too, and everyone knew it. Thomas listened and endorsed William's idea, and he sent Mr. Carter to Washington in order to get support from the administration. That went surprisingly smoothly, and so the final hurdle lay with General Sherman, then in charge of affairs in Kentucky. And here the plan hit a snag. Sherman had a lot of headaches at this moment, and he thought this a very dubious notion. First, the logistical challenges looked nightmarish to him. The Union could not supply anything more than a token force over the Cumberland Gap, and the Confederacy could repair bridges far easier and faster than the Union could get men into the region. It would take days, maybe even weeks, to get from Kentucky into Knoxville. And then, when General Don Carlos Buell replaced Sherman, he also thought the plan impractical. But William Carter persisted, and planned the uprising for early November. Now, part of the issue here is that he could hardly just ride home openly and exchange telegrams to coordinate things. He had to sneak over the hills to arrive safely, and there was no clear method to communicate back and forth except by people hoofing it over mountains. But while he couldn't persuade Sherman or Buell, William Carter absolutely persuaded many East Tennesseans, who planned out the attack. In the dark of the night on November 8, 1861, bands of saboteurs targeted nine railroad bridges in East Tennessee. They burned five in the end, as the group shied away from the ones guarded. In one case, a single Confederate sentry, standing watch, was enough to keep the bridge safe, probably because the Unionists did not actually want to commit violence against any one individual. In fact, William Carter had, at least in part, been quite correct. Unionists really did rise up and strike back against the Confederacy, trying to retake control over the region. But the Union army never came, and that doomed it to failure. Now, given that they themselves were engaged in a legally dubious rebellion, one might have expected that Richmond might have tried to react with a certain amount of finesse. One could point out that any violence they inflicted against the East Tennessee uprising would validate similar reprisals against themselves. This was absolutely not the path the Confederate government took. Instead, they chose an immediate and brutal response. Then, Confederate Secretary of War Judah P. Benjamin ordered summary executions of any captured bridge burners. Some men were, in fact, and wound up hung from the very bridges they torched in order to send a message. In total, the Confederate military immediately arrested a thousand men. William Carter escaped northward, but many others did not. And there really was no fighting, because the East Tennesseans had no military structure. They had no supply lines and the Confederates simply walked in and did what they did. Among those who couldn't get out was Parson Brownlow. As Confederate authorities began to pressure his newspaper in the aftermath of secession, he decided to leave for safer territory. However, the Confederacy had already closed many of the passes, and he couldn't get through. 
After traveling for a brief time from town to town, he ended up camped out in the hills. And because he was a known Unionist, who had seemingly vanished from the scene a few weeks before the bridge burnings, Confederate authorities assumed Brownlow must have been involved. But he wasn't, and actually learned of it only after the fact. Having no idea that he was under any kind of threat, he actually just wrote a letter to a Confederate military officer and politely asked if he could get safe passage to Kentucky. They responded positively, but when Brownlow returned to Knoxville to more or less make a formal request in person, the civil authorities arrested him. They charged him with seditions on the ground that he wrote an inflammatory anti-Confederate article. Legally, the authorities had no serious evidence of Brownlow's guilt. It's highly questionable whether or not he could even have been guilty of sedition against the Confederacy, given that he wrote the article before that second referendum. However, since Brownlow mentioned the idea of burning railroads in the article, ironically in response to the possibility of loyal East Tennessee men being carried to Richmond on sedition charges, those authorities again just assumed he was guilty. Plus, the fire eaters had never let law or common decency stop them before. The prison conditions were horrifically bad, even by the awful standard of the Civil War. Brownlow was packed in a disgusting, jammed-packed cell, with far too many men shoved in. Even under the best of conditions, these offered rather gross confinement, with dirty water and open barrels for human waste. There he stayed, awaiting possible execution. In a poignant moment, Brownlow helped a fellow inmate escape the gallows. His friend Harrison Self also faced execution. Interestingly, the same local pro-Confederate authorities offered to pardon Self if he gave testimony against Brownlow. Self refused. On the very day of Self's planned execution, Brownlow helped Self's daughter send a message to Richmond, last-ditch attempt asking for clemency, which the government immediately granted. Self escaped the gallows, while Brownlow himself eventually moved to house arrest. He did not even know at the time that Self was willing to sacrifice himself for Brownlow. Weeks later, the Confederate government backed down in Brownlow's instance, too. Richmond might want to hang a bridge burner without trial, but they had a few more qualms about hanging Brownlow. Indeed, it's not particularly clear that Richmond, in the persons of Jefferson Davis or Judah P. Benjamin, had pushed for the prosecution of Brownlow in the first place. More to the point, it looked weak, dishonest, and cowardly to push for execution on a flimsy pretext, and they now realized that a dead Brownlow would become a martyr. Eventually, in March of 1862, chill in the mountains, but after the spring thaw, the Confederate military escorted Brownlow to Union lines under flag of truce. But Parson Brownlow had not yet begun to fight and would go on to lend his voice to the Union cause until it won. As for East Tennessee, it would suffer under a hard occupation for the next two years of the war. Even as the advancing Union army occupied and liberated West and Middle Tennessee, they seemingly could not penetrate the hills until reaching Chattanooga and securing the rail line. But the people of East Tennessee did not give up, not by a long shot. Thousands of men crept across the border to join the Union army, and those left behind often glowered at the Confederate soldiers. Tennessee really did fall under control of a military authority as John Bell feared, but the rule came first, and worst, from Richmond, and not Washington. 
So too, the resistance of East Tennessee laid bare some of the ugly truths behind the Confederacy. For all that it purported to be a democracy, it was evident that here, in this region, the people did not wish to be part of the Confederacy. They did not need it. They did not want it. But Jefferson Davis's government could not let it go because it was strategically vital. But of course, this opened up certain questions about what was the nature of the Confederate government. Why were the borders of the states, which were often just straight lines drawn on a map because it had never mattered under the old Union, so important? Why did Richmond send out brigands to murder and hang men who just wanted to go and live under the flag of their fathers? Those are the questions I leave you with today. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.